Judges, Judges chapter 4. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with the book of Judges, that's fine, no problem. Look in the Old Testament. It's Matthew, uh, not Matthew, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. So it'd be the seventh book. Um, so we are in the book of Judges. Uh, and actually we're going to be looking at chapters 4 and 5 today. So I know that you're like, that's a lot. How can you do that? I can. I really can. Um, we're going to be looking at Judges chapter 4 and 5. As a matter of fact, you should know going into uh, Judges 4 and 5 that these should actually be read together. They should be read together. I'll explain that in just a second. I'm going to pray. Um, since there's so much, um, we're just going to jump right in. Uh, if I read all of chapters 4 and 5, then I would only be able to preach about 10 minutes So um, since it's so long. So I'm going to pray and we're going to just going to jump in and We'll, we'll go through mostly four, but I'll point over to five and, and let you see how things um, kind of correlate with one another. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this, uh, these chapters that point us to Christ, that help us see uh, how it is that you move and work in our lives and help us see uh, a great understanding of how you use different people for your glory. Sometimes unexpected. Um, but certainly that there is no, uh, there's no limit to the people and the way in which you move to accomplish your purposes. So we pray that we would see those things today in this text and that we would realize that those things apply to our lives as well. And that there's no need to put you in a box and how you can move and how you can save. But instead, Lord, that we can rejoice that you have um, ultimate power and that we can trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, uh, Judges chapter 4 and Judges chapter 5 should be read together. They are recording one single event, um, but in two different kinds of versions. So chapter 4 is prose, which is narrative. This means it's going to use common language, logical type of language, realistic language, and it's meant to inform. That's how chapter 4, in a much more like a, just think newspaper or something like that. It's explaining what's happened. Chapter 5 describes the exact same event, but in poetic language. It's poetry. It's in a song. And so it's got elevated and rare words. These things are called hapax legomenon, just for fun. It's when one word kind of only appears in the Bible and nowhere else. And you have to really try to, try to figure out what it means with context. It's got creative and abstract and emotional words. And the point of it is not to inform. The point of, it, of chapter 5, these kinds of texts are meant to cause us to worship. They're meant to cause us to celebrate. And so it's good for you to see two genres recreating the same, or recording the same event back to back. So you can see the creative differences that, that poetry takes. It doesn't need to be exacting nature. It's got rare words. Uh, it, it's creative. It's abstract. It's meant to be emotive. And it's also meant to cause celebratory uh, emotions within you. So <clears throat> these things to come together. And that's, that's a rare thing that you would see um, Two chapters record the same event with different genre together. There's one in Exodus 14, 15, where 14 recounts the celebrating of the uh, uh, crossing of the Red Sea. And 15 will have the same kind of thing, but it's a, uh, a song after it. And so <clears throat> here uh, we have that happen. However, it is helpful whenever we're looking at this uh, today because in chapter 4, we just know that the Lord wins the battle, but we don't know how. Chapter 5 in the poetic part actually tells us exactly how they won the battle. Because you might be, we might, which we'll get to, we might be wondering, how is it that they won? I don't understand how they won. So we'll, we'll see that in just a second. Um, but what I want to do is read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4 and let us see who, uh, 
the villains are in, in the story. And then we can understand um, just how amazing God's providence is in this entire story of chapter 4 and 5 where we see the story of Deborah and Barak. Uh, and I guess even Jael. So verse 1 and 2, it says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And so... Um, we know in chapter 3, Ehud had died. And then it lists out this, that verse 31 was Shamgar. So likely, if we're just looking at chrono, chronological order, uh, Deborah came after Ehud. Shamgar came later, but for some reason the writer wanted to stick Shamgar in there in 30, 331. Why? We don't know. But here we go. Uh, again, we start into the cycle of how the Israelites rebel after their judges <clears throat> die, and it says, and the people did what was evil inside of the Lord, and they have this cycle that they go through, it, that finally peace comes, but as soon as their judge dies, they go back into more rebellion, and then they keep going into this vicious kind of downward spiral cycle throughout the book of Judges, to where at the very end, uh, it's just clear that they need a king to lead them, uh, which the Lord gives them, but ultimately, what we need is not a physical king, but we need Jesus to be our king to lead us and to save us from the pit of, of sin just like them. So anyway, here we go. So they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And when that happens, the Lord allows someone to come in um, and rule and reign over them. We see that in verse 2. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of Jabin's army was Sisera. So we have... The, the two villains here as Jabin and Sisera. We're mostly going to see Sisera. Jabin is the ruler, kind of the king, and Sisera is the, the commander of the army who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. Now, those are the two evil people that are coming against Israel. Now, um, I want to take you to the end of chapter 5 and let you see the horrific uh, Sisera. I want you to understand when this man fought in battle and the war was over, what were some of the terrible things that he would do and just how amazing and how uniquely ironic this story is. So at the very end of chapter 5, verse 28 through 30, what we see here is this is the poem. So it's the very end of the poem. It's where they're celebrating uh, what's going on. And as we're looking at the celebrating, um, chapter 5, this poem is kind of set up for us to be able to see a contrast between two mothers. Uh, we have uh, Deborah is the mother of Israel, which is seen that in verse 7. The very end it says, I, Deborah, arose as mother in Israel. And then in the very end here in chapter 28, it starts talking about Sisera, the army and Sisera's mother. So, um, from, from a, from a mother's perspective, uh, what is it like for the mother whenever their sons go out to war? They, they, they come and it's telling us about Sisera. Sisera's mother comes and stands at the window and, and wonders if her son's ever going to come home. And so, as she's looking out the window, wondering if her son Sisera is going to come home, she's pondering and remembering and knowing some of the ways that Sisera fights and some of the things that uh, these Canaanites do. And it says in verse 28, out of the window she peered, the mother of Sisera uh, wailed through the lattice. Uh, why is this chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariot? So she's wondering, is my son going to come home? Well, he's not. Her wisest princess answers. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? So what we're going to see in 30 is the normal way if Sisera won the battle, what would he do? 
What, what are some of the things he would do to those particular people whenever he would win the, the battle? And that gives us a window in the, the vile, evil, horribleness of Sisera. And then when we see that, we take a step back and we see this amazing kind of unique irony of what God is going to do uh, to Sisera. So here we see, have they not found this boy, a womb or two for every man, a spoil of dyed materials for Sisera, a spoil of dyed materials embroidered, two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. So we see here, obviously they take colorful garments from people. They take some of the most expensive things. But the first line, or I guess it would be the second line of verse 30, I've not found divided spoil in here. It's a womb or two for every man. This womb is, uh, is actually it's, it's talking about a person, not the object, or, or not, not a, a body part, but it's actually talking about a girl. Uh, and maybe the better way to understand this is uh, it's talking about the whole person, not her body part. And so since it's talking about, uh, the, the better translation would be more like slave girl. Uh, my commentators all said wench, but you got to be careful when you say that. In the most literal sense, wench, as in someone who is sold into the sex trade unwillingly. And so Sisera would take women whenever he would fight them and divide them up one or two for every single soldier as their sex slaves. Now, God and we and um, rightly find this particularly abhorrent before the sight of the Lord. This is absolutely awful. Then and now, women are never to be treated as slaves or as objects since women from all of creation, uh, whenever they were created in Genesis chapter 1, were bestowed upon, with them, same as men, the same dignity, value, and worth. And so they're never to be objectified. This man, Sisera, only objectified them. So much so, whenever they went to war, he would divide out the women that they conquered to every soldier, woman, a, a, a woman or two for every single man. That brings us here to the unique irony that it is the Lord who's going to intentionally save women. And as he does it, he's going to use to, to the great irony women to defeat this man, Sisera. He uses Deborah and Jael to bring about the death of Sisera. And so it's a very ironic way to shame him in the pages of history. Tim Keller says it this way, Sisera's oppression, seen most horribly as he treats Israel's women in Jael, is the means by which the reign of rape and terror is ended. He uses women to, to end this. It's just an amazing how God would do this, right? After making the lives of many women hellish nightmares, it is two women who bring him down. There's great irony that the man who used women as objects is now killed by a womanly object, and that is being the tent and I'm sorry, the tent peg and the hammer. If you're not familiar, then you can just go to the end of four and you'll know what I'm saying. Um, so we're going to get to that in a second. But I think it's helpful for us to understand the unique irony that, that, we, uh, that the Lord is wanting us to see. That God wants to bring down this Jabin and Sisera, uh, but he wants to do it in his way. Since they were such wicked men and objectified women, he's actually going to ironically use women to bring him down. Now, back to chapter 4. Starting at verse 3, it says, Then the people of Israel cried out. So we've gone back into that cycle. Whenever we see in chapter one, uh, verse 1, they did what was evil. God brings some kind of oppression. And then verse 3, it says, Then the, pre the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Uh, and then that's that same level of repentance uh, that would happen. So here we have, and this is literally the sons of Israel. And this means the full nation. When it says the people of Israel, this means the full nation is crying out to the Lord, just like in chapter 3, 9, just like in chapter 3, 
15, just like they will do here in 4.3, just like they will do in 6.6, they will do in 10.10. All the people is one. Uh, The exact quote is, it says the people of Israel, but the nation of Israel comes and repents before the Lord. And it says the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help because this man had 900 chariots of iron and he pressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now, if you remember... Back in 119, we already know that chariots of iron are a big deal. In 119, it says, uh, And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, and he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Chariots of iron in this particular time was advanced technology, and they were not able to overcome the advanced technology of the chariots of iron because they, they didn't have things like that. And so <clears throat> Jabin, Sisera, these people were a, pro, a um, oppressing people, the people of Israel because they had chariots of iron. And here we get to chapter, I'm sorry, verse four. It says, now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lipidoth. So Deborah is introduced to us as a prophet of Israel, a prophetess of Israel in verse four. Now that shouldn't be uh, particularly striking to us because there were at least five women prophetesses in Israel uh, and she was one of the five. And so it, this is, she's not, she is a bit of an anomaly because most of them were, were men, but she's not a total anomaly. So uh, there were five other women that were prophetesses in Israel. And so being a prophetess, this means that Israel would understand, all of the people of Israel understand that God speaks through their prophet or through their prophetess. So she stood as a prophetess to Israel and God would speak through her to them. To them. And so the narrator, um, we don't know who it is, perhaps it's Samuel who wrote the book of Judges, never paints any type of lack of character uh, within Deborah. She's, she's very much like Othniel, Othniel when it comes to uh, her integrity and her character. So we should understand to her be, to be an upright prophetess of God. Now, she is introduced to us as this prophetess and it says she's judging Israel at that time and she used to sit under the palm of Deborah. This just means it's her palm between Ramah and Bethel. This is kind of between two cities in the hill country of Ephraim. And then watch this. And the people of Israel came to her for the judgment. Now, that people of Israel in verse 5 is the exact same phrase as verse 3. So in verse 3, we understand this not as individuals cried out to the Lord for help, but instead the nation of Israel cried out to the Lord of help. And so we should understand that in the same way in verse 5. We shouldn't read verse 5 as the people of Israel, some individuals just would haphazardly, singly come to the prophetess Deborah to hear things. Instead, we should read it in the same way we read 3, where the nation of Israel cried out for help. The nation of Israel came out to the, Deborah, to the prophetess Deborah as she sat under this tree, and it says, came up to her for judgment. Now, when you see the word judgment, lama spot there in the end of verse 5, um, this should be read and understood by most Jewish scholars and scribes at the time to actually have a definite article with it. So this means, that's the word the. And so that just means, sometimes you're like, what's the definite article? It just means the. So that means that the people of Israel, the nation of Israel came out to her, not for judgment, but for the judgment. They came out to her for the judgment, meaning because she's the prophetess of God and the Lord speaks through her, she has a word for them, for the entire nation. The entire nation will come out here because, in verse 3, the entire nation has cried out to God in repentance. And so... Who better to go to than the prophetess, the one that is the one that speaks for God, the one who um, <clears throat> Lord speaks through to them, and so all of them come out. 
uh, to, to her for the judgment or the the, the word of prophecy is another way to, to, to maybe understand it. Um, so one, one com- commentator says it this way. He says, accordingly, when the sons of Israel come to Deborah for the judgment, they're not asking her to solve necessarily legal, small individual le- legal disputes, but to give them the divine answer to their cries from verse 3, which is described. The fact that the Israelites come to her instead of a priest, because there were priests at the time, and normally... They would go to priests for these kinds of the judgment, but they're not going to a priest. Instead, they're going to a prophet. Now, um, priests in this particular time, could on, this office could only be held by men. And it says, instead of the fact that Israelites came to her instead of the priests reflects the failure of the established priestly institution to maintain contact with God. A spiritual tragedy explicitly de- described also in the chapters of 1 Samuel. And so they go out to her to, for the judgment. And upon speaking um, for the Lord to Israel, she tells them what the judgment is. And then after she tells them what the judgment is, we don't have a record of it. We know that after that, from, after, after she does that in verse six, she is going to speak to a man named Barak. So it says, upon, after she spoke to the Israel and telling the sons of Israel what the Lord has said, she's going to go do the same thing to Barak. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of a, of Abnoam from Kadesh Nephtali and said to him, has not the Lord, so she's telling him, again, notice this language, the, the way is, has not the Lord, the God of Israel commanded you. These are the same type of structures that any prophet would say whenever they would speak to someone. The Lord, your God, thus saith the Lord. The same kind of structure of the way that's written is, um, means that she's speaking with authority from the Lord to Barak. Now, <clears throat> Barak is going to be the one that will fight in the battle against Sisera. And so she's going to him and she's going to tell him, Brock enters this, this narrative. By the way, his name means lightning. So it's a pretty cool name. Um, and he enters and she's going to tell him that he needs to be used by God as a warrior. And uh, Hebrews in the hall of faith tells us whenever uh, it's mentioning Jephthah and Gideon and it's mentioning people from the judges, the writer of Hebrews actually commends Barak for his faith and, and, and listening to her and going and fighting here. So she says, has not the Lord uh, of the God of Israel commanded you? So Deborah continues with her prophetic voice to Barak and telling Barak, the Lord has called you to fight. And so what we see here in verse six and seven are going to be a, a prophetic speech that Deborah's going to give to Barak. Now she's actually going to do two prophetic speeches. The first one is going to be in chapter, I'm sorry, I keep saying chapter, verse, it's always chapter four, verse six and seven. Um, so the end of six and into seven is her first kind of prophetic speech that she gives to him. This is what the Lord says to you need to do. Go, gather your men at Tabor, Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Nephtali and the people of Zebulun, I would draw out to Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon and his chariots and his troops. And I, this is I as in the Lord God, I will give them into your hands. So that's the first prophetic speech that she gives to him. Like, this is what you need to do, Barak. She does a second one in verse 9. We're going to get to that in a second. Now, um, as she's given him this prophetic speech, then... That draws us to the kind of the, maybe the first kind of big picture thing of what I think we can learn from this chapter. So I've structured this chapter around the three characters, the outline, I should say, I've structured, the writer, my outline that I've structured is around the three characters that are given to us, um, specifically Deborah, Barak, 
and JL. And what are the things that we, I think we can learn from them and how God acts and how God moves and how God is working in our own lives. So God acting in your life, you can go ahead and put up number one. Number one. So when God acts in your life, you should look for God to speak from multiple sources. Now, what I mean by that is this. Here, God is going to speak from a multiple, multiple sources, but one of those is Deborah. Perhaps, perhaps in, the, in this, what is this, 14th century BC mine, perhaps this is uh, an unexpected source. But nevertheless, God speaks to them through Deborah, a, a prophet, a source that when he does, he incur, her, her words that she, that she gives to Barak and then to the people of Israel are the impetus or the catalyst that brings about all these events that will save Israel from this catastrophe of a man, Sisera, and Jabin. So what I mean is this. When I say, look for God to speak to you in multiple sources, I don't mean um, other sources other than the Bible are equal to the Bible. I don't mean that at all. The Lord speaks through his word. Period, end of statement. You don't have to say much more than that, right? However, when he does speak through his word, he also uses people around you to come to speak his word and encourage you with his word as well. So when I say looking for God to act in your life, look for God to speak through multiple sources. Of course, I mean, always first and foremost, look for God in any, in any kind of thing that's going on in your life, any kind of tragedy or next stage or what's going on or how do I make this decision. We always should search the scriptures um, as thoroughly as we can to figure out how the Lord's direct, directing us and guiding us. But also... The Lord has given you people in your life, sometimes unexpected, sometimes people that you wouldn't think, who also know the word of God and can apply those truths and come and speak to these truths to your lives and encourage you with the word of God. So my, my, my first thing as we're looking at this, when we say, um, look for God to speak from multiple sources, maybe I mean this, um, or not maybe, but I do. Think for God to encourage you and speak truth to you and encourage you also from people outside your normal box of edification. There's going to be other people that maybe you haven't ever thought of. They're going to be able to do it. And so here we see Deborah comes to Barak. And she has these two kind of, has not the Lord said to you prophetic speeches to him? One is in verse 6 and 7. The other is in verse 9. Now, verse 6 and 7, uh, those prophetic speeches that she gives in verses 6 and 7, they come to fruition in verse 12 through 16. So after she says it, in verse 12 through 16, it comes to fulfillment. In verse 9, that second prophetic speech she gives, it comes to fulfillment in verse 17 through 22. So after she gives them, then we see in uh, 12 through 16, the first uh, prophetic speech come to fulfillment. And then we see the second one in 17 through 22. So um, let's take a look at these. It says in verse 6 and 7 that God's going to deliver them into your hands, basically, uh, the Lord's commanded you, Barak, you know, go gather all the men at Tabor, take 10,000 people from Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and God, I, God, God will draw out Sisera, that's this wicked man, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon and his chariots and his troops, and I, God, will give them into your hand. God's just telling him, it's going to happen. Now, verse 8 kind of stands by itself as this one little mediating middle kind of verse, like, what do we do with verse 8? And then we get back to verse 9, where we have the second prophetic speech. So the, the two prophetic speeches are separated here by verse eight. And verse eight has brought some challenges to uh, commentators. They, they wonder what it means. Barak says to her, if you will go with me, speaking to Deborah, I will go. 
but if you will not go with me, I will not go. Now, verse 8 can be taken one of two ways, in a positive sense or a negative sense. The negative sense is Barak has a moral failure here, a lack of faith. He's afraid and he doesn't want to go out and fight. And what he lacks is faith in God. And because of this lack of faith, he asks Deborah to come with him because he's, he's afraid. And then upon agreeing, she's saying, I'll go. Now he's equipped with sufficient faith to go and fight. That's, that's the, the negative view, the, the, how some commentators handle verse 8. There's a positive view as well. It's this. Barak does not have a moral failure. Barak does not have a lack of faith. Instead, um, one commenter says it this way. At a deep level, um, Barak recognizes Deborah's status. Being a prophetess, she also meant the presence of God would be with her. The, re- the request to, accompany, uh, for, to be accompanied by her is a plea for the presence of God. And so that would wait, that's the positive way to say it. It's him saying, you have spoken for the Lord. You kind of represent right now to the people in this particular time frame we're in um, the presence of God. And so I want the presence of God to be with us as we go. Come with me. If, you, if the presence of God isn't with us, then I don't want to go. You can decide which one you want. I think after much struggle, I, after much struggle, I lean towards the positive view. I lean towards that it's not a moral failure, but instead, and it's not a lack of faith, it is. Because um, Hebrews 11 32 through 34 commends the faith of Barak in the hall of faith. Um, I call it the hall of faith, you know, like the hall of fame. It's not my, I didn't make that up. I'm not that original, but one of my professors probably said it. Um, It says this, what shall I say more from time to tell me of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David and Samuel, who through faith conquered kingdoms and forced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lion, quenched the power of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. And so my, my thought is the way that, that Deborah has been set up for us to be understood as a representative of the presence of God and um, that later the writer of Hebrews looks back and commends Barak for his faith that my, my view, maybe I'm just an optimist, but I think here verse 8 helps us uh, see that he, rep, he sees Deborah as, hey, come with us to this place. Now, she's not going to go into the battle. She's not going to go into the war, but she's going to go with them to, before they get there. And he's asking her to come. Now, which brings us over to verse 9, this second prophetic message she gives. The first one is that the Lord's with you if you just go fight. The second one is this. Now, Barak, Barak, you don't get the glory. You don't get the glory. Verse 9. I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road in which you're going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Not you, Barak. You're not going to get the one to, to kill Sisera. It's going to be, dun, 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 a woman. You know? It's not going to be you. And so automatically the reader thinks, Deborah's going to get out on the battlefield? What's happening here? She's not. She's not. And then he says this. Um, then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. So now, as we're looking at this, we're thinking, <clears throat> well, I guess it's going to be Deborah. We don't know. If you've read ahead, you know, and I know, don't ruin it for everybody else. So um, the second <laughs> prophetic statement is this. The glory's not yours. And not only that, you're not even going to be the one that kills Sisera. So those are the two prophetic statements. Which brings me to, as we're thinking about Barak, and we're thinking about God working, the second way about God acting in your life, the second thing you can learn, put it on number two, is this. Boom. All right, it's going to come up there in a second. Don't look for the glory for yourself in your life. Whenever you're doing things for the Lord, instead, give the glory to God. 
Give the glory to God. It's not about your glory. It's not about your glory. When God's moving and working and acting in your life, um, it's not so that everybody thinks you're awesome. If that happens, well, praise God that people like you and think that you do great things for the Lord. But still, even in that moment, you're like, you shouldn't say like, I do think that I am pretty great. Yeah, like that's not it, right? Instead here, and it's so, so clear here, um, perhaps there was, and the Lord just knew to, to say it through Deborah to Barak, some glimmer of like in Barak's heart. I want a little glory here. I want to be the one that kills Sisera so that everybody sings praises to Barak. And so he says, she says to him, it's not going to lead your, to your glory. The Lord's going to sell uh, Sisera into the hands of a woman. By the way, which is just a disgrace to be killed, especially of a commander of an army, to be killed by a woman. So here um, in the 14th century BC. So here we are um, seeing that God doesn't share his glory with anyone. First Corinthians 10, 31, uh, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, give it all to glory to God. All glory should be reserved for him. Now, um, the fulfillment of, of this happens as we get to uh, 17. Now, we have verse 11 and it says, Barak called out to Zebulun and Naphtali and Kadesh and 10,000 men went up at his heels and Deborah went with them. So they're going there. And then we get to verse 11. It's kind of like verse 8. Another kind of like stand out in the middle of nowhere verse. Like, what's this? What the narrator is doing is setting us up later. He's, he's hinting. He said, she's going to, he's going to die at the hands of a woman. And so he gives us this, this little verse 11, which kind of sets us up a little bit, helping us understand what's going to happen later. Now, Heber, the Kenite, who had separated from the Kenites, a descendant of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had pitched his tent as far as way the oak of Zananim, which is near Kadesh. Then back to verse 12. When Sisera told, so like, uh, why'd you put that in there? <laughs> like, I don't understand what that had to do with any of it. It's going to pick up later when we get to um, 17 and following. But he wants us to be thinking about this Kenite. Now, whenever you read <clears throat> verse 11, it should point you over to 116 because you've read that. And I know everybody remembers because you're tracking with, one, with the book of Judges over and over. But in 116, it gives us a little bit of insight into who to the Kenites are. It says, And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Pons into the wilderness of Judah, which lies at the Najeb, near Arad, etc. So the Kenites are descendants of Moses' father-in-law. They're not Israelites, but nevertheless, they're closely related to the Israelites because they're, they're by marriage uh, related to Moses. And so these particular people, we see the Kenites separate from the Kenites. Heber had done this. The descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses. And he had pinched his tit as far away as the oak of Zanamanim, which is near Kadesh. We don't know these places. I know you don't. But the whole point he's trying to help us understand is who are these Kenites and where they come from? Well, they're descendants of Moses' father-in-law. Now, we get to verse 12. And 12 through 16 is in verses 6 and 7, we saw that first prophetic speech. Now we're going to see the fulfillment of that, which is God's going to be with you. God's going to be with you. He's going to bring things about that you're going to, uh, where you're going to win. We're going to see that happen in verses 12. Through 16, when Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinadom, had gone to Mount Tabor, um, Sisera called out his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, highlighting that advanced technology again for us. And all the men who were with him of Harosh Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, up. So she's telling him again in a prophetic way, up, get up, for this is the day the Lord has given you and to Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go before you? And Barak, so at this point here, this is where Barak separates himself from Deborah and he goes into the battlefield. So Barak went down from Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And here it is, verse 15. Verse 15 is the key to the entire chapter here. It says, the Lord 
routed Sisera and all of his chariots and all of his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. So here, uh, the deliverer, the savior in chapter four, it's not Barak, it's not Deborah, it's not Jael, it's the Lord. It's not one of three, it's not all three. Instead, it's one of us to see. Keller says it this way. We can see the ultimate honor should not go to one or two or three people used by God, but to the Lord. The Lord routed Sisera. Now, whenever you see this, you might be saying, well, I don't understand how it happened. We're going to get to that in a second. But first, I want us to understand uh, the good news in verse 415, where we see the Lord's the one that routes them. The Lord is also our deliverer. In the same way that the Lord routes them, the Lord has routed for us Satan's sin and death on the cross and delivered us from our sin and shame. Just the same way he delivers the people of God here from their um, wicked oppressor, the Lord God has delivered our wicked oppressor, Satan, on the cross by dying for us on the cross, destroying him and putting him to shame in the same way. Now, um, whenever we're reading this, it says the Lord routed Sisera and Sisera got down from his chariot. So there, these 900 chariots of iron, and he fled away on foot. foot. Barak sees him run away and pursues the chariots of the army. So he, he, he still wants the glory. He's still chasing after him. And all the armor of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. And you just read that and you're like, well, how? If they have this advanced technology, how did it happen? Well, um, we have a little bit of, of help with chapter five by knowing the how of what had happened. If you look at chapter five, verse 20 through 22, in the poetic song, we get the how. Um, they're in these massive chariots and they go down by this kind of river. And what does the Lord do? Uh, verse 20 through 22, from heaven, the stars fought from their courses. They fought against Sisera, the torrent or river. Uh, Kishon swept them away, the advanced torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might, then loud, be- then loud beat the horse's hooves with the galloping, galloping of steeds. And you're like, okay, I think I understand. What is it, Fud? So here's what happened. The Lord brought torrential, terrible rain so that these, uh, the, there hadn't been rain in a long time. And all of a sudden these roads just got completely filled with water and mud and these massive chariots of iron could no longer roll in these roadways. It was just so filled with mud that they all had to get out of their chariots and go fight. And when that happened, they didn't stand a chance because when it came to a sword fight and they get in and use their advanced technology with these big chariots of iron, we got to get out and we just got to fight. As we see here, they all died by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. Israel was good in battle, not against these chariots, but once the Lord, they, you know, Canaanites weren't expecting this, brought these torrential rains and muddied up the roads and their, their chariots couldn't roll anymore and they had to get down, Israel fought and Israel destroyed them, except for, except for Sisera who got away. So um, prophetic speech number one, you're gonna win, the Lord's gonna give them into your hands, fulfilled in 12 through 16 by bringing the torrential rains, chariots can't move, done. But we have this second uh, prophetic word, in verse, 19, in verse 9, the road which you're going won't lead to your glory. The Lord's going to sell sister into the hand of a woman. How's that going to work? How's that going to work? Well, we're going to see this in verse, come to fulfillment in verse 17. So we're at 17 um, and through 24. But Sisera, but Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael. So now when we saw in verse 11, this Heber guy, the Kenite, he, we're picking back up at Heber's wife, Jael. So but Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael. One commenter said this was like 40 miles away, maybe. I, that seems crazy that he ran that far. But um, anyway, maybe that's not exactly right. Um, but Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, 
that's Sisera's boss, uh, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. So whenever he ran, Sisera ran over, he knew that Heber and Jabin had some kind of like, we're friends, we're okay. So when I come up to Heber's tent and I see Jael, this should be a place of peace here. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him. So she immediately takes control of the conversation. Um, and then as she's doing that, tells him to turn aside, turn aside. That means don't worry about me. I'm not going to hurt you. Don't be afraid. Um, and so whenever we read 17 through 22, um, we should remember back to Ehud. Remember the kind of the, the, the way that Ehud killed big King Eglon on, Eglon on the toilet and how kind of uh, uh, kind of gross it was. This killing of Sisera by Jael sounds eerie, eerie, eerily similar. So let me read you some of the things uh, so you can see. Uh, this is uh, a guy by the name of Block. He says, the stylistic and verbal links between 17 through 22 and part of Ehud's narrative in chapter 3 are obvious. The absence of the divine hand, the focus on individual actions, the use of speech to get to the victim into a vulnerable position, um, the motive of treachery and deception, the sequence of murder and then discovery by someone else, and the use of the verb takah, uh, which is to thrust at the critical moment, and then the sequence of entry and discovery. And so what we see here is the method of J.L.'s killing and attack on Sisera deepens the irony of the passage even further. Setting up and taking down tents was considered the work of women in this particular time. Therefore, the tent peg and the hammer were essentially a woman's household appliance. The application means, if I've already given away, J.L. kills him um, with a tent peg right through the head. Uh, and so whenever he does this, the application then is this. And this is not just application for women, but for anybody. Uh, this woman that God chose used the tools around her that God provided her to do the work of the Lord. Ultimately, that's what it is. Now, gruesome as it may be, it's still her using the tools around her to fulfill the work of the Lord. And so women in the church and men in the church, God's calling us to do the exact same, uh, to, do, to do the exact same, to use the tools around you, the way that God's gifted you, to continue the work of the Lord. You don't have to be anybody uniquely special. God has gifted you the way he wants you and use those gifts that he's given you to do the work of the Lord. Um, now, as we keep going uh, here, we can see how it happens. So uh, she said, turn aside, turn aside, don't look. Um, and so uh, he came out to meet her, turn aside. She turned him aside and took him to the tent, covered, with a, covered him with a rug. He's obviously... He's been in a, a, a battle and he's, ran, he's run for a long time. So he's, he's exhausted, tired. And so he said to her, please give me a little water to drink for I'm thirsty. We can understand why that. And she opens a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. So he gave even more. And he said to her, standing at the open of the tent, if any man um, comes to you and asks, is anyone here? Say no. But the wife of Jael, Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand, and she went softly, this is like also the word secretly, to him, and drove the peg into his temple until it went through his head into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. <laughs> oh, he did? Okay. Because I was wondering if he was going to live through that. Uh, most people live through that kind of stuff. So good thing that you cleared it up for me. So, um, so he died. Maybe the most obvious statement in the Bible. Um, but we see here is this, that... Uh, that because of this uh, work of Jael, where we see in, in verse 9, where we have this prophetic word that Sisera, uh, I'm sorry, 
Barak will not get the glory. He's going to sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. We see here that it comes into fruition where Jael is the one that did that. And then we see in verse 22, and behold, Barak was pursuing Sisera, and then Jael went out to meet him, just in much in the same way as she went out to, to Sisera. Oh, you're looking for somebody? He's, he's probably, the guy you're looking for is probably back, back here. You should come see. And behold, I will show you the man whom you're seeking. So and I'm assuming in Cicero's, I'm sorry, Barak's mind, he's thinking he's going to come to him and maybe he's just passed out, not going to find him dead. Uh, and he went to her and there he lay, Cicero dead with the tent peg in his temple. So she's done it. I mean, she's, she's killed him. And therefore we see verse nine coming to fulfillment there as well. And then it says in verse 23, so on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan before the people of Israel and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin the king until they destroyed Jabin the king of Canaan. And if we look at the very end of five, uh, chapter five, if you go to verse 31, you can see the, the cycle continues and rest came and the land had rest for 40 years. The land had rest whenever this happens. The land had rest for 40 years. So let's try to think of some way that we can conclude and apply this to our present situation. Oh, number three. Number three um, is this. When we're talking about JL, is this. God acting in your life. Look for God to work in unexpected ways. <laughs> That's maybe a pretty obvious statement. But um, an unexpected work of God is obviously a tent peg to the head by JL. That, we weren't expecting that. Uh, and Sisera certainly wasn't expected. Similarly, I think that you should look for God to work in unexpected ways in your life. Don't put God in the box of the way he, he works. He doesn't work in the way that you think he always works. He can do anything. He can do anything. Just as Jordan read today in Luke 8, where Jesus' disciples were freaking out because we're going to die. And they're like, don't you have faith? Don't you understand? Like, I'm in charge of everything. Everything. So you've seen me do these other things. I can control this too. I'm in charge of everything. So you don't have to be worried. Same way. We can, since that's the case, we can expect God to move in unexpected ways. And so... Uh, know that he's going to do that in your life as well. Don't always just say, well, this is how God's always moved, so he's going to do it again in this particular way. That would be a wrong application. Instead, realize that he has multiple ways that he can do uh, and move in your life. And you should uh, be expecting those things and rejoice when those things happen whenever they're different. Now, um, as we're seeing this, uh, this whole kind of uh, thing unfold. In in chapter 5, verse 7, Chapter 5, verse 6 and 7, what we're going to see is a, uh, kind of a way to help us understand how to conclude, conclude this particular text. So um, in chapter 5, verse 7, we have a name that's given to Deborah. And this name that's given to her is Mother of Israel. Again, this is a poem. This is a song, uh, rare words, and, and it's meant to cause celebration. We say, in the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned. The travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. When we read all that, what we can understand is if the highways are abandoned, the travelers are kept in the byways, and the villagers ceased, meaning Israel was afraid of their enemies' attacks, so most of them stayed home. Most of them stayed off the main roads, and portions of northern Israel and southern Israel were cut off from each other completely. And this particular time, the aspect of community within the people of Israel had ceased. There was no community within the people until Deborah arose and she came to speak life into the people of Israel. And when she did that, restore to the people of Israel a a community. Keller says it, um, that 
she brought about a social fabric. The only hope lay in Deborah, who mothered Israel, beginning to restore the social fabric of people, bringing people back together into being the people of God and celebrating the people of God, not staying away. She brought and restored this social fabric and prompting the willing volunteers among the people to go then throw off the oppression that was happening. And so in the same way, um, remedy... We need to be used by God, like Deborah, to speak life into to, to each other and continually cultivate and bring social fabric and cultivate community here in our church to um, be the people of God, to be used as the people of God, to push back the oppression in their lives as well, namely Satan, sin, and death. And so here we see that that's what, what she does and how God uses her in this particular text to restore among them, bring them rest, of course, as it says in 531, but also restore the social fabric of the entire community, uh, bringing community back as the people of God for them. Now, I want to conclude with, by this. I'm running short. I'm sorry. I preached too long. Sorry, Jordan, wherever you are. Um, <laughs> four, two chapters. So uh, let's conclude with the gospel as we see JL here in, five, in 421, as she drove the peg into his temple and he went to the ground. And just as Sisera's head was crushed by the tent peg. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, also tells us of a crushing of a head. It's the Proto-Evangelium. It's the very first gospel ever again given to us. In 3.15, it says, I will put enmity between you and the offspring, between your offspring and her offspring. You shall bruise his head. Satan shall bruise Jesus' head when he dies on the cross. But Jesus shall, I'm sorry, Satan shall bruise his, Jesus' heel when he dies on the cross, but Jesus will bruise Satan's head. He will crush his head when he dies on the cross and is resurrected from the grave. So just as we say, see here that Jael uses the tent peg to crush the head of Sisera, similarly, um, Jesus is really a truer picture, uh, a, a truer and better uh, Jael, where Jesus is the one who crushes the head of Satan on the cross whenever he dies on the cross and then ultimately is resurrected. Unlike Jael, he didn't lull his enemies to sleep. Instead, he confronted our enemy head on and destroyed him by submitting himself completely. Jesus submitted himself completely to the will of the Father by going to the death on a cross and then ultimately being raised from the dead to defeat Satan's sin and death so that we could be free forever. We could be the people of God. As uh, Philippians 2 says it this way, and being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestayed, bestowed upon him the name above every name, so that <clears throat> at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this time that we have that we can come together and read your word and study your word and ultimately see, as it says in chapter 4, verse 15, that you are the one that has routed our enemy, that you are the Lord, you are good, and you deserve all glory, that you don't share your glory with Barak, you don't share your glory with us. Instead, all glory is to be reserved for you because you have destroyed the head of the oppressor. You have defeated our enemy for us and freed us from our sin. And so may we worship you and give you the glory for that. We pray, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to celebrate that them and for us. And the perfect king that comes for these people of God has no flaws. Not like the judges. He has no flaws. He's perfect. He saves Israel, but he also extends that salvation even to the Gentiles, to probably every single one of us in this room. 
He's not just an earthly king like David would be, but he's a heavenly king. And he's not just a heavenly king. He's the king of all kings. There's no king better or greater than him. And so now as we, the people of God, when we trust in Christ and we believe that all of his perfection is given to us and all of our sinful flaws are put on him and we become the people of God, we, the people of God, don't ever have to slip back into repeated downward spirals of idolatry like the people of God. But instead, since Christ has already purchased for us victory completely, he gives us his righteousness and for, sanctific- for justification and for sanctification takes God himself, the Holy Spirit, and puts him in us. And so there's literally, for the people of God, we do not have to walk in half-hearted devotion to God, but we have completely the capacity because of the Holy Spirit to live in wholehearted devotion to him. That's the good news. So if you felt beat up the whole time, like I really stink, I am a half-hearted follower. You don't have to be if you're in Christ. You can absolutely, because of the gospel, because Christ died and the Holy Spirit living inside you, be a wholehearted follower of Jesus, a wholehearted follower of God. Our King, Jesus Christ, forgives all of our sinful flaws and has purchased for us complete perfection. One day, only that we would walk in it and one day we'll achieve it in heaven. But you have the power and the capacity right now to never, ever, ever, ever be thought of as a half-hearted follower of Jesus because he's given it to you already. That's the good news. Because without that, we would all feel despair every day. I'm never gonna be a wholehearted follower of Jesus. You're right, we won't. But praise God that he's given us Christ. Let's pray. Lord, you're so good to us. You give us grace that we don't deserve. Enormous grace that we could never even possibly conceive of deserving. You give to us. And so, Lord, we thank you for it. We thank you for this picture of wholehearted devotion in verses 12 through 15 as we see this family lifted high in the the people of Israel, as people that are obedient to you, as people that trust you, as people that come to you and say, these are the things I need to thrive as your Christ follower. And you love us so much that you want to give us those things. You've given us Christ. You've given us the gospel. You've given us the Holy Spirit. And you have supplied all of our needs in Christ Jesus. And you know us individually too. You know our weaknesses. And so you forgive those things. And you walk beside us through our trials and travails as we continually Adopt, as the book of Joel, chapter 2, a spirit of repentance on and on about the uh, things in our life that need to be sanctified. But you don't hate us, and you're not mad at us, and you're not frustrated with us. You're a loving father, like Caleb, who loves us more than we could ever conceive and dispenses grace unfathomable. And we thank you for that. You're so good to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going into the Lord's Supper now. And this time at the table at the Lord's Supper is a time where we remember this amazing news that Christ Jesus has gone to the cross and purchased for us righteousness. This righteousness that we could have never attained. He freely gives to those who believe. And the Lord's Supper is a time where we eat the bread and drink the cup, remembering that his body was broken and his blood was shed. And we have this now in Christ. It's a time of celebration. And so, uh, if you're a believer in Christ, it's time for you. You can come forward and you can get the bread and cup and come back to your seat. And I'll lead us all corporately to take the Lord's Supper together. If you're not a believer in Jesus, 
uh, we just ask that you observe and you'll see a tangible example of uh, the gospel, of the good news of what Christ has done. We're not saved by eating this. We're reminded that we already are saved. And so if you're not a believer in Christ, just observe and you'll have a, a picture of the gospel before you. Whenever you're ready, you have a whole song. You can come forward whenever you're ready. Get the bread and cup and come back. Just as a reminder, there's a table in the back and there's wine or juice. Make sure you look at the sign and pick the one you want.